This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And I suck you up and I spit you out and I play with your babies till you scream Hello, 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 and welcome to episode 70 of Burn It All Down. We are so excited to have you all here with us today in this first week of September. Uh, My name is Lindsay Gibbs. I am the sports reporter at thinkprogress.org, and joining me today are three of my fabulous co-hosts, Brenda Elsie, the Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, Amira Rose Davis, my fellow critic of sexism and women's tennis in, on Canadian television, <laughs> and also an assistant professor of history and many other things at Penn State, and the alarmingly enthusiastic <laughs> Shireen Ahmed, who was in a very good mood this morning because she got some sleep. So coming to us live from Toronto, Canada. Hi, everyone. How are you all doing? Hello. Morning. Morning. Shireen, show us some of that pep. I am so ready to burn everything. (laughs) I'm so excited about life. I got seven (laughs) hours of sleep last night. I'm just like so excited. Oh, I love to hear this. So we have a really great show for you all today. When do we not? Let's be honest. We're going to be talking about Steph Curry and male allyship after his letter about women's equality in the Players' Tribune. We're going to be talking about the policing of women's bodies in sports, inspired by a couple of tennis-related wardrobe conversations this week. And then Shireen has a phenomenal interview with the lovely Canadian and WNBA star Kia Nurse. So, yeah, buckle up. All right. We're going to get a little bit into Steph Curry and male allyship. Brenda, you want to start us off here? Yeah, male allyship is a pretty complicated topic. I mean, there's a lot of literature, a lot of books, a lot of writing, a lot of thinking that that people have done about this topic. And I feel like in the age of Trump, it's hard to even criticize anyone making an effort, basically. (laughs) So I had a really big problem in thinking through this Steph Curry letter because of course, I this week he wrote in the Players' Tribune about having two all-girls basketball camps. And, of course, it's like, yay. But then I'm like, ew, about the letter. I don't know. I'm going to open this as it's sort of polemical, and then we can talk about it. But first of all, the piece is called This is Personal. And maybe Steph knows that the main feminist slogan from the 1960s and 70s is the personal is political. And I feel a little bit annoyed at the lack of social context, at the lack of intersectionality in the letter. I mean, there's not even really a mention of race or how, you know, the fact that his daughters will be women of color face, you know, a different sort of set of of obstacles. It just felt to me a little bit trite. And there's not much of an admission that he makes a lot of money off of these camps. I mean, this isn't like some big NGO like LeBron's launching to send young underprivileged girls to great schools or something. You know, this is a basketball camp. He didn't mention or include any women basketball players so far as I can tell. And it just felt a little bit, I mean, again, it's hard to criticize because of the context in which we live in. But I find it pretty easy to criticize in terms of what does ideal male allyship look like 
And I'll just read, I guess, for example, something where he says that his basketball, this is from the letter, that the basketball camp, quote, was the sort of thing that can help to shift people's perspectives so that when someone sees an NBA player is hosting a camp, you know, maybe they won't automatically assume it's for boys. And so eventually we can get to a place where the women's game, it isn't women's basketball. It's just basketball. I don't know. It kind of felt like, you know, there's a lot of great women's basketball and sort of underinformed. What did you guys think? I'll go real quick. And I, I said this on social media and it got included in one of Twitter's big moments things. And so I got a lot of backlash about this for a few days, but I stand by it. He has this big thing about women's equality and about his girls basketball camp, which I think it's wonderful that he had a girls basketball camp. I am all for him having a girls basketball camp. I do think that in itself is great. But he doesn't mention the WNBA once. (laughs) How do you not mention the WNBA? How do you not mention women's college basketball, but especially the WNBA? It was the day of the WNBA semifinals. And like, this is a really concrete way you can help the game of women's basketball right now is by drawing attention to these phenomenal playoffs that are going on right this second. And yet, if you look at Steph Curry's Twitter feed, when I did earlier this week, there was only one mention of the WNBA. And that was a retweet he had of a Players Tribune article that Allie Quigley had written about shooters and it tagged about the best shooters. And it actually tagged Steph Curry in the tweet. So it was, you know, talking about his own shooting ability as well. So, you know, that was it. He's not out here on social media, really kind of hyping up the WNBA. And I'm not saying that has to be his job. That doesn't have to be everyone's job. But if you're gonna be writing about the women's basketball and right now, and talking about how this we need to support the women's basketball community, how in the world do you do that without giving a lift to the pro game? I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. It's incredibly frustrating. And I just think our bar is so low for male allyship that we goo goo gaga over anything. Like one man comes out and says, yes, women deserve equality. And then every, you know, all of social media loses their minds praising him for a few days. And ugh, it's not okay with me. And I, I love Steph Curry. <laughs> I do. So, you know, this is complicated. Shireen? Okay, so we're talking male allyship. I'm rolling up my sleeves here because I need to get into this. Allyship, according to the Anti-Oppression Network, let's actually define what that is. Quote, allyship is not an identity. It is a lifelong process of building relationships based on trust, consistency, and accountability with marginalized individuals and or groups of people. Allyship is not self-defined. Our work and our efforts must be recognized by the people we seek to ally ourselves with. End quote. So according to this, the Anti-Oppression Network is fantastic, and they have really good explanations of things and projects and just sort of terminology what Steph Curry did is not, in fact, allyship. What, what he basically did was shout out his thoughts on what should happen because he has daughters. Okay, I'm sorry. You don't get cookies for saying that you want the world to be a better place because you have daughters. You should actually give a shit even if you don't have daughters. You should care about women if you don't have a wife or you don't have a sister. Like exactly like Lindsay said, people are saying, you know, and and this is this most often happens with with male figures I find in celebrities. They use the women in their lives as shields to protect against criticism like oh i'm not sexist or misogynist because i have a daughter and i want the best for her no 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 that's actually you being super super patriarchal in your clan that does that doesn't make you a male ally at all so this idea and i don't love steph curry i think he's an amazing basketball player but i don't like like i'm way more about KD than i am about curry and that's because kevin durant's mother i love now the thing is is that getting back to this topic The idea here that, you know, I agree with Brenda that when someone says something, we're not trying to be discouraging or be feminist killjoys. Well, actually, yes. But the thing is, is that really Steph Curry, do better, do better because you want the best for your kid. And guess what? The best is the WNBA. You didn't mention it. John McEnroe did this when he criticized Serena Williams when she was pregnant and she came back and she's like, you know, I respect and adore you, but just keep 
your comments to yourself. They're not factually based. He came back to come up with something sexy. His reply was, no, 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 no. I have daughters. I understand the importance of women. Like, what does that mean even? What does that mean? That means that you're literally using the women in your life to protect you from getting criticism, rightly so, and being accountable for comments against other women. It doesn't work like that. So I have, like, I'm very riled up about this. I love it. I love when Shrink gets riled up. It doesn't take much, though. So, <laughs> Amira, I know you have some things to say. Yeah, well, I'm actually less riled up. <laughs> like, I just don't care. I mean, I do care. and But I just think that, for me, this is a long story about people who are allies, who, like, it's a journey. I always think it's a journey. And we see this right? With white people who like need another white person to explain something that black people have been saying. Or we even saw it with the viral video of um, Beto Rock in Texas doing explaining why players are kneeling like they haven't been saying it themselves for years, three years at this point. But that goes viral, you know, that gets the applause. And so I think that that's, it's a super frustrating thing. But for me, it's like this just kind of like, it's something that I roll my eyes at. But I also feel like for my own sanity, I've just like, you know what? Steph wrote a letter in the Tribune hyping up girls basketball. And that like, we can always push allies to be better. But I feel right now at this particular moment, I just feel so taxed by like, larger I don't know how to explain it I just like can't bring myself to give energy to this in yeah this that life. makes sense it does that Shereen okay yeah just so Amira on that topic then because we're exhausted from it rightly so I totally agree with you on that but is the idea to then just say well it's okay it's fine the bar is that low like the reason I'm riled up about it is I actually think Steph Curry is a sincere human I, I have hope for Steph Curry I don't have hope for like I don't know well I don't think it's saying the bar is low for me it's like for me it's parsing out the difference between individuals on their personal you know journeys of allyship right to me I think Steph is on that Steph is doing that like this seems to be the beginning of some sort of awareness I think what frustrates me more is the reaction to that right it's not Steph that is making everybody hype this up more you know what I mean it's like when we talk about Shea Serrano's tweets right Shea is has turned into this ambassador for the WNBA but it's not him who's retweeting himself thousands of times and so it's like the eye roll for me is on everybody else's reaction that somehow that is more legitimate or somehow that that they can hear a male voice talking about women in sports besides hearing the women. Or they can hear a white voice talking about X, Y, and Z instead of all the black athletes who've been saying it. Like that to me is where it's at. Whereas I'm like, you know what? If Steph is to the point now where he's decided to, you know, take this step and then write about it, maybe the rhetoric's not there. And I do think that it's worth kind of criticizing rhetoric to say like, this is how things get perpetuated. And I'm totally on board with that. But I think that my ear is drawn more to the way that we legitimize and elevate voices that are in more proximity to power all the time. That to me is the real issue with that. And like pushing allies to be better, I think is a continual process. But sometimes I'm just tired. I don't know. Totally. Up, Ren? It's totally tiring educating people about oppression. (laughs) I'm sure it's exhausting. But I would like to compare Steph's letter a little bit with the open letter about female coaches that Paul Gasol wrote. And I think that's a really good comparison because it's so much better. It's so much better, so much better because it speaks to a particular issue. It elevates a particular woman. You're saying Paul's letter is better. And it doesn't give... Okay. Yes, because it do- it doesn't give himself the center stage in this story or his daughters or what's personal, right? He chooses to lift up Becky Hammond and to le- delegitimize all the arguments that someone might come up with to say why women wouldn't make a good coach. And he's able to do it from the inside in a way that's persuasive. And so for me, I feel like Gasol like, asked himself at some moment – who is this for? What can I do? How can I support this person's career when I read this stuff that's just bullshit as a basketball player? I feel like Steph like had an epiphany or something 
which is great, but it's not the same kind of allyship. So no, it's certainly not. But I think that people start somewhere. Like, of course, I, I look. Uh, we think about this all the time when we say, "Oh, somebody was a raging homophobe, and then all of a sudden their daughter came out, and so now that you know, you've all seen the viral video of that father in Alabama, you know, protesting." Uh, local politicians, Roy Moore and, and whatnot, because his daughter came out and then actually killed herself. And that was his epiphany. And I think that there's a conversation to be had, certainly, and this is why I'm, I'm glad to have the conversation. I'm not disagreeing. Like, I agree with everything you're saying <laughs> completely. But I also think it's like holding up that letter and saying like, oh, that's, this is what allyship should be. And then saying, I think I'm taking a stance where it's like, Steph, I see you. I see you on your journey. Here are some tips to be a better ally. But also, I'm glad you're, you have joined us in this room. Is it okay to say, I'm glad you've joined us. Let's take you in this direction. <laughs> yeah, 100%. 100%. But like something that I've become increasingly wary of, and this is like in sports and politics in general, is people who are just getting there, who ha- don't necessarily have that same background. Like they have to start somewhere getting shooed out of the room because they're, they are just arriving to it. And I saw this a lot, like around stuff from the women's rights and stuff like that. And don't get me wrong. It can be so frustrating and annoying when you're like, but we've been said this, or we've been telling you this, or you could go to the library and do all this research and all this stuff. But at the same time, like, I'm just at this point where I'm like, listen, you've opened the door. You're trying to come in. That's fine. Here's how to be a good ally. Here's how to do that. Come in. And also like, but I'm also going to be like appreciative of your arrival. I mean, I'm glad that you're saying all this, Amir, because you're right. And like I said, I do really love Steph Curry and all that that he stands for. And maybe that's where my frustration came. And I'm also, maybe I wanted better from the Players' Tribune. Maybe I thought the Players' Tribune could have pushed him a little bit more because let's be honest, we know that he did not write this letter himself. (laughs) You know, like these are based off of conversations. And, you know, the Players' Tribune has done so much great work on women's basketball. But I guess my frustration came from it being the day of the W. WNBA semifinals and instead of there being a big WNBA semifinals piece it was all about Steph and the same thing happened on ESPN and I'm going to criticize ESPN in a place and I don't want to think I'm criticizing the people who do the Around the Rim podcast the women's basketball podcast at ESPN because LaChina Robinson is is a legend and does so much for women's basketball and so does Tarika Foster Brasby her producer and I admire both of their work so much but you know the podcast has been on hiatus during much of the last part of the WNBA season for good reason, because they this was the time they were taking an actual vacation, which they very much deserved. Do I think that ESPN have had other people come in and do that podcast? Yes, <laughs> you know, in, in exchange, because it's a vital thing. So when they're on vacation, that shouldn't mean that ESPN's only women's basketball podcast, you know, goes dark you know, during the most important part of the WNBA season. And then the podcast came back this week during the playoffs with big reporting from inside Steph Curry's camp, you know, so they were allowed access into his camp. And I'm not mad that they were allowed access into his camp. I'm mad that the, you know, the biggest women's basketball podcast didn't have an in-depth thing on the WNBA semifinals and instead had an in-depth report on Steph Curry's camp. And so that's, I'm just frustrated in general with... Well, when they take up space, is that, you know, that that to me is the issue. It felt like it was taking up space and he was getting so much praise and that it wasn't instead of using that platform to direct attention to a thing that could actually like instead of taking that platform that he had and directing attention, mentioning his girls basketball camp, mentioning his, you know, things, getting the praise that he deserves for the women's for the girls basketball camp and then directing it to someplace really productive it just stopped. Do you know what I mean? It just stopped. Yeah. And everyone said that was okay. Yeah. And that's just where my, my frustration came from. Okay. Yeah, I agree right. with that. I know that uh, we could lot. talk about this forever. And I hope we continue this conversation. But for now, we're going to move on. All right. There was another complex kind of conversation happening in the media this week about what women should or should not wear or how they should or should not change attire on the tennis courts. Amira, you want to get us started here? Yeah. So you may have heard me burn Serena Williams' catsuit ban from the French Open Federation 
last week. And then on the heels of that, just mere days later, we had another treat to the policing of women's clothes in tennis. French star Elise Cornet was uh, issued a warning for briefly taking off her shirt on the tennis court of the U.S. Open this past week. She had gone for a heat break, came out onto the court, realized her shirt was on backwards, and just quickly turned it around. Now, the reaction to her violation set off another kind of red flag about the way women's bodies were policed in tennis, certainly because, and not in the least, because many male athletes sit on the sidelines during changeovers with no shirt on all the time and are never issued such warnings. In the kind of after the firestorm that followed and a lot of people calling it out, the U.S. Tennis Association issued a kind of lukewarm apology for the court violation and clarified that what the attire policy was and kind of tried to walk it back. And so that certainly happened. But I think that we can listen to Cornet herself, who was like, you know what, I appreciate their apology, but took that opportunity to actually call out her own president of the French Federation and said, what Bernard said about Serena's catsuit was 10,000 times worse than what happened to me on the court yesterday, because he's the president of the Federation and he doesn't have to do that. We still have people like the president of my Federation that live in another time and can do these sort of comments that for me are totally shocking. And I think that to be able to even use that moment to connect it to that. And I, I, I actually disagree with her in a way. I don't think it was that much worse. I think they're part of the same problem. Um, this historic and continued policing of what women wear as athletes professionally and otherwise and the minute I saw the hullabaloo over this, especially when she showed her sports bra, I thought back immediately to Brandy Chastain taking off her shirt after the 99ers won the World Cup and what a firestorm it was because she dared to don her sports bra. And so, you know, the, the fear of a sports bra is something that lingers very high in my mind. And I would love to throw it to you guys and see your kind of opinions on the continued policing of women's bodies. And especially thinking for me, I know we talk a lot about the professional ranks and I'm happy to have that conversation. But the other thing I wanted to throw out there to kind of kick this off was thinking about what that does to um, amateur and like youth athletes. I think about this as I see the high school cross country team run by my house. I remember being in high school and having all these disagreements because the boys cross country team ran in like speedos essentially. And, you know, one time we all took our shirts off and running sports bra because it was hot as hell. And there was all of this uproar over it. And I remember how much shame it brings and how much feelings of, well, what's wrong with us? What is the power of our sports broth that scare you? And so as, even though this conversation is happening on the professional or kind of older level, I really also want to think about the ramifications it has for high school girls and middle school girls and, and the stories that w- the messages were transmitting to them. Oh, that's so important. Uh, Brenda? Yeah, it's funny because sports is, a, is such an interesting lens because the body is front and center. And the body, so much of what goes on in terms of gender conversations, obviously. But it's funny because when Amira is talking about young people, I'm sure a lot of listeners have had this where, and you all, where you have to explain to a little girl why she can't take her shirt off. And they're like, what? Like around five or six, they really don't understand the logic, you know, because they're not there yet. So it is really important for young people to think about it. And from the perspective of women's soccer, because of the tradition of changing jerseys, it is always a conversation that in every women's football federation or or branch that they tell women, just so you know, you can't change your jerseys. In fact, when the Brazilian Federation in 1981 finally ended the prohibition legally of women's soccer, it was the first thing that it said. Women cannot change change their shirts. And it's just amazing to me that it just assumes a a sexualized relationship between the women among the women, the women in the audience, or the men looking at the women. 
any of which seems like something one as an adult could maturely tackle. And yet we still have these ridiculous things. (laughs) It's ridiculous. Uh, Shireen, I know you have a lot of thoughts on this. Well, I mean, the whole idea of policing women's bodies is so integral to the conversations that I have in my own work and research. I mean, it's quite frankly, the reason that I got into sports writing in the first place was control on women's bodies, policies about hijab, exclusion of women in various parts of the world, and in probably most federations, major federations. But just to this thing that Brenda said, I have a daughter, I mean, I was an athlete as a child, and I never looked to my body. And I was very lucky that this happened in my life. And I realized it was a privilege to desexualize myself in sports in the sense of not take away from my how identified as a woman and as a girl. But when Brandy Stain took off her shirt, I didn't see, oh my God, boobies. I saw world champion. That's what I saw. And I was so excited for her. It was an incredible moment. She did viscerally what her her reaction viscerally was just one of elation and jubilation. And I related to that in the sense of I was so excited for her in that moment. And just on that piece as well, last week I participated with this wonderful organization called Nutmeg Soccer in Toronto that I went to go work with a group of girls and downtown and we just you know had a little chat with them about the work I do. There was a couple of them that were doing somersaults as I was talking because like, you know, attention span and pulling of grass. It was fabulous. They were like, there was also one little girl and I believe she identified as a young girl and she didn't want to wear the same thing as everyone else. Some girls came in dresses, some girls came in shorts, one girl came in really fancy cleats and it was totally fine. And guess why nobody was negatively affected. Everybody had fun. Everyone tried their best and therein lies the issue that, and even in that process, I asked the girls in the circle, there was about 12 of them, Uh, to give me something good about themselves. And I've noted this in my own coaching experience. The way that young girls are programmed by society, very young girls, meaning between four and eight or nine, will tell you how great they are. A lot of them, they'll be very happy to tell you. When they get to that pre-adolescent phase, they become so self-conscious and pre-pubescent and in that stage. They have a very hard time with confidence. So I noted in the group, the younger girls had a great time to tell me they were good at like somersaults and splits and singing and pogo stick. But when we got to the older girls, it was really hard for them because this is the fault of society. Now, like Brenda said, it's almost like you're faulting the athlete for the perceptions that society has about them. It's not Brandy Chastain's fault that everyone else is going to have a hard time seeing an athlete in a sports bra. But it's like women get penalized for that. It's pretty frustrating on that end. And, and I've seen it. I've seen policies and I've written about policies and, and not just about hijab bans. I've done research. FIVB actually has a policy about the width of the bandana of the bra and the bikini bottom for beach volleyball players. They have no such policies for men. Just like in soccer, the men can switch shirts and the women can't. Like it's just, it's clear, obvious, institutionalized sexism in these policies. That's what this is. Yeah, absolutely. Amira? Yeah, I completely agree. And I think a lot for me thinking about this is how historical it all is. And it's stemming from this particular notion that sports itself is a masculine space and that women are kind of trespassers on this field of men. And historically, that has come into play in two different ways. One, As a business perspective, the value in women's sports has been this kind of spectacle of come see the unbelievable, come see the feminine, meet the masculine. And the reason that had to be played up is like, because who would want to just see women as athletes? No, it's about the fact that we're we're supposedly merging these two things that don't go together. And so if you think about a league of their own, right? The All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. This is why their uniforms were skirts, right? It was like, look, come look, we have women playing baseball, but they're still women because they're wearing skirts. Or the idea about tennis skirts. And they used to be tennis dresses where the idea was like, you're still feminine on the court. And it, it goes to persistence ideas like when FIFA's like, when Set Blatter's like, yeah, the way to improve the women's game is to make the shorts shorter, right? This all is part and parcel of the fact that what is worth seeing women as athletes is their bodies being feminine and still performing this like inherently masculine thing. And I think that that premise itself is so toxic. And so when we're talking about the policing women's bodies, 
We realized it's because a lot of these sports institutions, exactly what Shireen said, is institutionalized, and they were institutionalized in ways that weren't even meant for us. And I think that, to me, the policing of bodies is about drawing a box in which it's acceptable to be a woman who engages in sports and plays sports. And so part of this is a larger conversation of how do we break down these structures and so that women can be athletes for the sake of being fucking athletes and not because, you know, they look good doing it. Oh, preach. Yeah. And I think what we what we get is to wrap this up, women get trapped in this box. Right. And you saw it this week, you know, Serena in this cat suit, you know, maybe this isn't feminine and delicate enough for the French Open and for tennis historically, you know, and her black body is scary. Then Elise Cornet. Oh, my God. Women boobs. We can't have that up in the open. You know, so it's like you're trapped in this box like, you know, these the people who are running the sport very much want the women to look like women, preferably thin white women who have, you know, is, is, is non-threatening and as feminine as possible, yet not in an overtly sexual way. And you just draw these lines that, that don't fit any real woman because they, you, you can't win, you know, we have to see you as sexual, but not too sexual. When women are just like, hey, uh, I'd like to play, you know, be an athlete. And yes, sometimes I would like to wear, you know, tennis allows women to, you know, express their fashion sense in different ways. And that's very good for the sport because people love fashion and also because the sponsors are happy because they get to sell a lot of different types of clothes. And that's become an integral part of the sport. But women should be able to do that based on their own personalities, based on what makes them feel comfortable and not on these, you know, rules. I mean, Victoria Azarenka loves playing in shorts. I love seeing players play in shorts because it just, it's just something a little bit different. I love Serena's tutu, you know, it just we can have all of these things and they can all fit in the same umbrella. I always think back to the Boxing Association, which a few years ago was trying to get the women to box in skirts at the Olympics, literally wanted the women to be in skirts so that people would know that they were women because they were so afraid that from far away, you wouldn't be able to tell they were women. But they're they're women and they're women's boxers. So people are going to know they're women. <laughs> like, what are we what are we doing? It just makes me really, really angry. Shireen, really quickly wrap us up. We got to go. Yeah, I mean, the crux of this issue is for everybody in the world to understand that women, you know, are the backbone of the entire world of all of humanity. And we are perfectly capable of selecting our own wardrobes on the court, on the pitch, in the pool, wherever it can be done. It's none of your business. We will do what it takes to get done and let us be comfortable and make our own decisions. End of story. Amen. Now, Shireen has a fabulous interview with the wonderful Kia nurse. I'm so excited to have my favorite WNBA player on Burn It All Down today, not only because she's Canadian, but I'm so happy to have Kia Nurse on with us today. Hi, Kia. Hey, thanks for having me. Kia, what do I say about Kia? Born in Hamilton, Kia Nurse is a Canadian basketball player for the New York Liberty. She's a point guard with the WNBA. She was drafted 10th overall. At the 2018 draft, she played shooting guard for UConn Go Huskies and also won back-to-back championships in 2015-2016. She's also a really pivotal member of the Canadian national team in which she played the 2014 FIBA World Championships and won a gold at the 2015 Pan Am Games. She also won MVP of the 2015 FIBA America's Women's Championship. In addition to all these amazing things, she's also a classically trained opera singer. So the rumor goes. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so glad you could be with us today. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I'm glad I could uh, get the chance to talk. So I have a whole bunch of questions for you. First of all, starting with the WNBA draft. And what was it like being part of that amazing draft class? You were number 10 in the overall pick. And what do you think that effect had on Canadian basketball hopefuls? Because you were such a legend. Uh, Obviously, the draft was a dream come true. Um, We went in a a couple of days early. And for me, when I was sitting, having conversations with my agents. And I said, am I even going to be invited to the draft? Like, I have no idea how this works. I know there's only 
12 people who do get invited because our draft is so small with only 36 picks. And for me, it was an honor to have even been there, but also it was great to have my entire family there to, to be able to see it happen. So being part of a great draft class was a lot of fun. It was nerve wracking. Anybody could really go anywhere at any time, but I was really blessed and really fortunate to have gotten drafted to New York. And for me, I think all Canadian basketball hopefuls and the young women who are growing up can now see that something like this is possible. I was one of those kids who didn't go to a prep school in the States, who stayed home and played at St. Thomas more for high school basketball. I did transway stuff. I was all really in Canada. And my whole philosophy growing up was that if I was good enough, then somebody would find me. I would give myself the opportunities to be seen in the summer, going to a couple tournaments here and there over in the States. And if somebody wanted me, they'd come and find me. And I thought that was something that now young Canadian hopefuls can stay home, play basketball, be with their family while they can, and then find ways to make it as far as they want beyond that. That's awesome. It's so important. Was this draft more special because you also had two other UConn teammates with you, Gabby Williams, Ezra Stevens? Absolutely. One of the best parts about it is that we kind of did orientations. We did a lot of things before the draft with all of the the people who were there. And it's always better when you're in a room of 12 people and you know two of them already. So you're kind of your own little clan. But it's a lot of fun, obviously, for Gabby, who I spent all four years with, and Azrae, who I spent two years with. They're great people. They're great basketball players. They work hard. And to see them having success in what they're doing makes me as happy as anything. Oh, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. So what was the transition like from the NCAA to the WNBA? Was it like a shock? Because, I mean, you were playing massive stadiums at, at UConn like, and, and filling those stadiums. And then to go to Liberty, and I know you, your team is at Westchester now, but was, was that part of an interesting transition for you? Absolutely. I think for the basketball side of the transition, I was very fortunate to have come from UConn and to come from the national program where it probably allowed me to learn and understand the transition a lot faster than I would have uh, had I not been there. And in terms of changing over to the, the whole new system and the whole new league, you have new teammates, you have new coaches, you don't fly private anymore, you're commercial. We had a very condensed schedule, which included a bunch of back-to-backs and a ton of travel in a short period of time. And then, like you said, our, our facility with the move from Madison Square Garden to Westchester was completely different. And it, it's a different crowd. But I think for us, it, it's a bit of a transition just coming from a college like UConn. But it, it's been a lot of fun so far. And I think it can only continue to get better. Have you ever been starstruck when you've played other teams? Or have you ever stepped back? Like, I know you're key on earth. Because I know there's tons and tons of girls, not just in Toronto and around the entire country, who see you and completely you know, just lose it because they're so excited. But have you ever had that feeling of, oh my gosh, I'm stepping on a court with this legend? Yeah, <laughs> always. Um, most, <laughs> most nights in the WNBA, when you get to play against the best in the world night in, night out, it's pretty crazy. I mean, I had to guard Maya Moore. That was part of one of, that was one of my assignments. And I was like, this is not going to happen. This is not going to go well. She had a couple buckets in a row and I was like, yeah, this is not good. She's one that I'm always kind of starstruck by, by her ability and, and what she does. Sue Bird is another one with her um, mindset, the way that she plays. I think for me to, to be on a court with these women every single night is an honor, but it's also something that is going to continue to help me grow as a, a person and as a basketball player. And I think shout out to Lindsay Whalen because she you know, had an incredible career and in what she did and she has inspired so many. And I think that that's one of the other ones is when I got on the court, I was like, ha, how am I going to stop this? <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> so you're enjoying New York and it's not too far from home and the season for you has been good so far. How was the season this year for you? Yeah, New York was incredible. It was a great transition. I absolutely love the pro-life and the standard of accountability that you have to hold yourself to, the responsibility of taking care of your own body, but also having the freedom to kind of go home and sleep a whole day if you need to, or go home and go to a dog shelter because you're bored and you want to play with some dogs. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> so there was so much that was going on, but at the same time, that it was just a ton of fun. And for me, the year obviously didn't go as well as we wanted to on the court. We didn't have a great winning record, but it was a, a learning experience. It was a transition. I have great teammates, and we're going to see and hopefully see where it goes Next year, we got the number two pick last night in the draft lottery. So that'll be good for us. Do you have any predictions about the playoffs? No, I mean, right now, the WNBA playoffs are absolutely incredible. I think it's so like unpredictable. And that's probably the best part about it. And I think for people who have never watched women's basketball or people who have something to say about women's basketball, this is the time to watch because these games and these women are, are putting on shows every single night for, for people to see. 
for me, unfortunately, I haven't been able to watch any of it because I've been in Canada and we don't show those things out here, which is frustrating in its own self. And WNBA has blocked out, <laughs> blacked out <laughs> our century over here. But to be watching it, all the highlights and stuff right now is great. And then I'm going to find a way online to get this to work. You know what? I have some shady uh, soccer folks that send me shady uh live streams, I will be happy to send you WNBA. (laughs) And if anybody heard this, no, we're all good in Canada. We're not doing anything, you know, questionable up here. Um, No, but you do what you got to do to watch these games. And especially when I see everybody else tweeting about them, I'm just like the mystics are making people absolutely nuts. So it's like incredible. So are you looking forward to the season at the University of Canberra Capitals in Australia heading over to the WNBL after national camp? Yeah, I'm excited beyond belief. I think for me, this is a whole new adventure. And I think everything lately has been a new adventure. And now I, I look and I talk to people, I'm like, well, I live in one place for like three months at a time. And then I move to go somewhere else. So right now, the whirlwind that it is as my life has been a lot of fun. But at the same time, every year, three or four months is, a, is something new and exciting to kind of go and explore. From what I've heard, from all the players who have previously played in Australia. I haven't heard one bad thing about it yet. <laughs> so I'm um, very excited to get out there to see, you know, a new culture, even though it's pretty similar here. But kangaroos, I'm really excited about kangaroos. The spiders I'm not excited about. Um, but again, new teammates, new coaches, new system. And I think that'll be a lot of fun. And Vegemite, you can eat Vegemite in Australia. I heard about that. I'm, I might try it. I'm a very picky eater, but we might try it. Okay. So... I saw your tweet about missing ketchup chips and I totally resonated because when I go to the United States for work or whatever, I go to buy chips because that's my snack food and I don't see ketchup and I'm like, how is this a country? They don't have ketchup chips. Is there anything else you really miss about Canada? There's so much I miss about Canada. When I come back, I'm like, oh, this was nice. The all-dressed chips are also a thing with me. My mom will stalk me up on both of them, but like, she always comes to ketchup first. Um, <laughs> crunch, crunchy bars, I am obsessed with. Tim Hortons is a big thing for me, but apparently there was one down the street from where I lived in the train station, and I just didn't find out till the last week I lived there, which was really unfortunate. Was it really the same, uh, the Tim's down there? Is it- no, it, it doesn't taste the same, but it's just the homey feeling of it that I actually appreciate. Do you have a favorite donut? Uh, chocolate dip or old-fashioned dip. I think it's just the dip part I like. But. Okay. Oh, and for everybody listening, this is legitimate, important sports talk, Okay talk about Tim Hortons like it's very very important I saw recently and I would be remiss if I didn't mention you at the W I mean the MMVAs which are the much music video awards which is basically like the most important cultural event in Canada other than like the NHL playoffs (laughs) which usually have nothing to do with Canada other than the players how was that experience and was it fun to be back and just be around what was that like yeah, it was a, absolutely incredible. For a couple of years now, I've had people try to work and see if we could find a way to, to get there. And I've never had the schedule to be able to do anything around this time. And now I was fortunate to not have to go back to school <laughs> here for a couple of days. And it was absolutely incredible. The red carpet was an experience in its own. Uh, I was like, don't fall and make sure your poses are good. But my hair and makeup people helped me out a lot. So thank you to them. But it was absolutely incredible. We hung out with Andre DeGrasse, also another great Canadian athlete who's fun to be around. And uh, saw some you know, celebrities up close and personal, danced to the night away, and called it a good one. That's amazing. You looked absolutely exquisite. I think you look exquisite all the time. But I think that, you know, like even on sweats, in sweats on campus, which was actually one of the highlights of my entire last year was meeting you and meeting Batuli and meeting the team. And just like you came from an incredible program and to see on the ground and see the conversations that your team's were having and interested in was so important as women athletes and women of color. It was just really, I mean, there's a lot of crap that happens in the NCA and different programs. So to see that happening in real life was like incredible. And, you know, you had an impact. I mean, I'm, this is going to go on into me fangirling and I hope you'll forgive me for that, but you know, it was just an honor to be with you. And for those that you don't know, Kia, she's officially, I have her, shirt the the liberty shirt and i'm so proud to wear it and when i wear it around toronto i get like smiles and nods because it's the first one i've had but i mean it's it's important and i'm happy to wear it anywhere but i just i'm really proud to own it and i all suggest all of y'all get one and uh, she's like (laughs) so in addition to your singing will you sing us a couple bars (laughs) no never the media will never get me singing 
Maybe at a karaoke party. But that's the one thing. The one fundraiser I may throw in my life is absolutely a karaoke party. Awesome. That's brilliant. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. We are huge fans and so excited you got to talk to us. And best of luck with in the Canadian team. Be definitely rooting for y'all. And then again in Australia. And hopefully I'll see you around in February when you come home. Yeah, for sure. Thank you again for having me on. I always love talking to you. It's always so much fun. <laughs> but and everything that you do for everybody around in the podcast world, everybody listening, you speak your mind. And I really appreciate that. It gives me the motivation to want to do the oh, same. Oh, that's so sweet of you. Thank you so much. And I want to get you to sign my jersey when I see you. So oh, yeah, no problem. Anytime. Okay, thanks so much, Kia. And say hi to everybody, all the fam. Okay. I will. Take Thank care. you. Okay, now it is time for everyone's favorite segment, the burn pile. Brenda, get us started. I'm going to, this is going to be quick and dirty. And it's, it's sort of a a dirty burn because it's not, I don't know, some people are going to feel like, oh, it's not fair. And what I want to do is I want to burn a lot of the wonderful responses to Manu Ginobili's retirement. Don't we all love him? Yay. <laughs> okay, no Shereen and I know. And I want to burn the responses that seem not to know where Argentina is or that it's a real country with a real history and a basketball league that's been in place for decades. And I also want to burn the very trite headlines like ESPN's Cry for Manu Argentina. I know that a lot of writers had titles get changed. Mine did at The Guardian and I was furious. And there's not always the capacity for writers to do that. So I don't want to blame them all the time. But I do want to say there's a general kind of, we love Manu Ginobili, who's retired after 23 seasons, you know, gold medal winner, Euro winner, one of the funnest people to watch of all time. And but we don't really care where he's from. It doesn't really matter. So I want to I want to burn that. I want to burn that because there's something so provincial about it, which is like either get a Spanish speaker reader on your staff that can read Argentine headlines so that you don't say things like a hero to his people, which is so dumb. And you have no idea. Do you have any real idea if Argentines love or hate him? Because I'm sure you don't. And so either get someone on your staff that can do it for you, that can actually make an assessment of that, or just don't rest on ridiculous things like Madonna inspired, you know, don't cry for me, Argentina. I guess it's Andrew Lloyd Webber. I mean, you know, really. So I just want to burn that because I think Manu Ginobili deserves better. And I love him so much. Burn. burn. Shereen. Okay, so this happened a couple weeks ago, and I'm just going to say that we're talking Serie A here, and I'm going to burn the Lazio supporters section that think that certain places in Stadio Olimpico is a sacred place, quote-unquote, where women are not welcome. So what ended up happening at a match against Napoli, and this is in the end of uh, August, um, the ultras, who are their supporters section, handed out flyers stating that the part of the stand that they do occupy is, like I said, a sacred place. I don't even know what that means. Like, I'm sorry. I think anywhere Martha walks is sacred. I think where Nadia Nadim goes is sacred. Carly Lloyd's foot is sacred. What does that mean? It means that Lazio supporters have a very unhealthy, misguided view of what is actually proper football, which is very, very bizarre. Anyways, I want to burn that. I am all for people having access and particularly women having access. And I think this also really, really quickly gives us an insight to understand that this types of misogyny aren't only in places in Iran. They're not only in places in in developing nations. They're in like Western world. Women are not welcome and it's bullshit. And I want to burn it. Burn. All right, go with USA Gymnastics really quickly. (laughs) It's still a flaming dumpster fire. I know you're all going to be shocked. But this week, USA Gymnastics appointed Mary Lee Tracy as the president and head coach, or she is the president and head coach of the Cincinnati Gymnastics Academy, and they appointed her as their new elite development coordinator, or at least they did briefly. 
Why was this appointment so brief? Well, because it turns out Mary Lee Tracy had very publicly, as in in printed news articles, defended Larry Nasser and said that the victims were lying, even after 50 of them had come out and Nasser had already been charged on three counts of criminal sexual assault. In December of 2016, an additional 37,000 images of child pornography had been found on her on his computer. This is what Mary Lee Tracy told WCPO Cincinnati. She said, quote, my Olympians have all worked with Larry. We are all defending him because he has helped so many kids in their careers. He has protected them, taken care of them, worked with me and worked with their parents. He's been amazing. What? (laughs) What? Not only that, but uh, Mary Lee Tracy has very recently, as in like the last five months, been on public Facebook pages defending things at the Crowley Ranch and saying that Allie Raceman and other survivors were exaggerating and being dishonest when they're talking about how abusive the culture of the Crowley Ranch was. So this is not a woman who should be the elite development coordinator. Now, Rachel Denhollander, Allie Raisman, a lot of these women came out against this appointment. Um, I wrote about it for Think Progress and, and other outlets covered this as well. And Mary Lee Tracy went on to say that she was being now cyber bullied. She was the victim here. And apparently she tried to reach out to Allie Raisman to talk to Allie, but USA Gymnastics was very upset that she did this because USA Gymnastics doesn't want any contact with the survivors because of ongoing litigation. So they ended up firing Mary Lee Tracy because she reached out to Allie Raisman. <laughs> so this whole thing was just a dumpster fire, and it shows that USA Gymnastics is not ready. It has not learned a single thing. USA Gymnastics has no idea how to change its culture. And we just need to start over at this point. Throw it all in the burn pile. Burn. 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 All right, Amira, wrap us up. Yeah, I want to burn the fact that this past week in Puerto Rico, the Puerto Rican women's team was playing a match versus Argentina. And as the match started, they stopped playing and stood together in solidarity to speak truth to power and bring a sense of urgency to what they've been facing from the Puerto Rican Soccer Federation, which includes lack of pay, lack of matches, the firing of their coach about a month ago that was with no kind of plan in place to replace the coach and with major disagreement about why their coach was let go. Um, And they stood there and refused to play. And the Argentinian team gave them space and support and, of course, are familiar with their own uh, fights against their federation. And this comes on the heels of them signing a letter to the Puerto Rican Soccer Federation saying that uh, calling for, again, more games, wasted opportunities of not getting more international friendlies in, more uh, maintaining and reinstating the coaching staff, and continued support, financial support for both things like injuries, transportation, food, and just actual general pay, which they're not getting. And what I want to burn is the kind of lack of awareness of both the plight of this soccer team, where I saw very, I don't even, I can't even find a news article about this. It was all on the ground reports from people who are at the game via Twitter. So I want to burn that, but it, it speaks to a larger problem about how we've conveniently ignored Puerto Rico. And one of the things that this really made me upset about that I really, really want to burn This comes on the heels of a week where the death toll officially after Hurricane Maria was raised from 64 people to 2,975. This is, I don't even have words for how heartbreaking this is, how infuriating it is, and how it's not the lead story every day that 2,975 people lost their lives and we as a nation have been turning our backs and clearly headed by this administration, but also generally like it feels forgotten. And I know it's not exactly sports, but the combination of this and the lack of attention that the women on the Puerto Rican soccer team were experiencing bounded together and just tore at my heartstrings to say, this is ridiculous. 
This whole island needs attention. These women need attention. The rebuilding needs attention. We need to be paying attention to make sure corporations aren't coming in and using this disaster to privatize and build resorts and push people out and and push people to the montañas. Like there needs to be attention here. And I want to burn the way that we've treated and ignored and and colonized and continue to mistreat island that I hold so dear. Yeah, I want to burn it down. Burn. Burn. Thank you so much for that, Amira. All right, time to talk about some badass women. All right, so for honorable mentions this week, we have Japan, who won the gold in women's soccer at the Asian Games. Perniel Harder of Denmark for winning UEFA's Women's Soccer Player of the Year. The Icelandic women's soccer team for selling out a stadium for the first time. Oh, that's so exciting. Mahaja Nood, the first female assistant soccer coach in the Middle East region. She is uh, coaching in the Syrian domestically. That is super exciting. And all the women playing in the 2018 and 2019 Women's Field Hockey Series. It takes place in six countries, and it'll start up again on September 18th through 23rd. And the final leg will be in Santiago, Chile. And can I get a drum roll, please? There we go. There we go. That's good. All right. <laughs> that was the baseline. Was, I liked it. I liked it. All right. <laughs> we want to congratulate the Japanese women baseball players who were dominant in sweeping their way to a sixth consecutive Women's Baseball World Cup. They finished things off by beating uh, Chinese Taipei 6 nothing in the final. Ayami Soto was named the tournament MVP for Japan. And Chinese Taipei took the silver and Canada beat U.S. for the bronze. And our very own Jessica Luther has been there all week and we cannot wait to hear, to read what she writes from there and also to talk with her more about the Women's Baseball World Cup on the show. So congratulations to all of the players, but especially the Japanese team. All right, let's wrap up quickly. I'm going to go with what's good. What's good is these WNBA playoffs. I certainly hope that the both of these series somehow go five because this is just the most fun I'm having. Of course, by Tuesday, you will know the answer to that. But yeah, it's just it, this. This is such a fun time for me with the women's the WNBA semifinals and then the U.S. Open tennis going on. I'm just having a ball. Brenda. Yeah, uh, Chile's first ever official friendlies with the U.S. women's team. If anyone's not following it, you should. These women are incredible what they've sacrificed, that they don't really get paid for what they do. And the U.S. women's team for inviting them. Thank you. Thank you. They're in front of crowds, you know, yesterday of twenty to 30,000. They're playing again this week, um, September 4th, and their enthusiasm is infectious. And it's just so cool. It doesn't matter if they lose. They've, they're such winners. All right, Amira? Yeah, I really had so much fun on Friday watching Aretha Franklin's home going with all of Black Twitter. It was like the family reunion I never knew I needed. And then it literally was like eight and a half hours. So it ended basically right before Venus and Serena played. So it was just like a day of blackness. And I just love black people so much. And that was really great. And um, I'm reading a really good book, Children of the Blood and Bonus, young adult book, but it's like, I just love it. And so it's like the last fictional book that I'll probably read until the semester's over or the whole school year. So I'm going to settle in and read that today and watch Serena and watch Sloan and watch the Red Sox. And it sounds like a good Sunday to me. Sounds amazing. Shireen? For everybody following the saga of me dropping off my eldest to university, that's done. He's not super far like he's only an hour away but it's still you know moving out in that process I survived it I got mistaken as his older sister a couple times which made me feel really good about myself but anyways that was wonderful and he's doing kinesiology and I hope at some point he actually is assigned some required reading where I'm sighted that would like totally make my life happy anyways there's that I watched Milan last night which I absolutely love I'm super excited about the rest of my children going back to school because 
at this point in the summer, I feel like a cruise ship director and I'm exhausted. I want these children to go to school and be gone for seven hours every day. I'm so excited about that. I cannot tell you. I also wanted to do say two things. I'm very excited about uh, some burn it all down merch because I'm going to get myself a tote bag because I love tote bags and I cannot wait to see the faces of my brilliant co-hosts on this tote bag as I take it everywhere. And in addition to drinking from my mug of coffee, which I am doing currently, thank you, Amira. I am really, really excited about that. And mostly, I want to say this, I'm going to see Brenda Elsie in the last weekend in September at Dickinson College for the Critical Perspectives on Soccer and Social Justice, the second symposium. And I'm keynoting and she's speaking right after me. And I think there'll be some karaoke happening in Carlisle. Maybe at the symposium. Maybe at the symposium. And hopefully, hopefully Amira will come. Amira, drive down. No pressure. Love it. (laughs) All right. Thank you all so, so much for listening and being with us today. You can follow us on Twitter, Burn It Down Pod. Remember to go to our Patreon page. Your support is literally the only way we can do this. It takes money to get the help we need to do this. And uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, thank you all so much. We'll see you next week. And I'll suck you